0: Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Luke chapter 23. If you want to flip there in your Bibles and follow along, you can. Whenever we have a Good Friday service, I like to read an account of Jesus' passion. So if you would like to, you can turn to Luke 23 and follow along as I read, or you can look uh, along on the screen above. Then, the whole company of them that being the council that Jesus had appeared before. "'The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. "'And they began to accuse him, saying, "'We have found this man misleading our nation "'and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, "'and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. "'And Pilate asked him, "'Are you the king of the Jews? "'And he answered him, "'You have said so.'" Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. But they all cried together, Away with this man. Release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, starting in the city uh, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man uh, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and they came to the place that is called the Skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word my family's been uh doing devotions uh, in the morning and these devotions include uh, work of art uh, a musical piece and and then a scripture reference and a devotion Uh, and i was struck today when i was with them Uh, The piece of art, which I'm going to try and put up here, Thomas, I think it's one slide over, uh, is a piece of art called Ece Homo. Ece Homo, which means behold the man. It was painted by uh, Mateo Carrezo in 1665. And when you look at a piece of art, here's what you need to realize, that it's not like taking a photo in that when you take a photo, you can do some composition uh, of what the photo looks like, but generally, the information you get is, is the information that you get. When it comes to painting, especially if it's a master, then every stroke is there on purpose. And so you're supposed to take in a painting and look and ask yourself questions like, why this here? What's going on? Uh, And as I looked at this picture, a couple of things struck me. Uh, First, his hands are fairly dark. You see that? Uh, And they're tied. Now, symbolically, that that can mean a couple of things. Normally, when we do stuff, we do stuff with our hands. And throughout the Bible and in many other uh, symbolic texts, hands are symbols of power. So Jesus' hands are tied and they're dark. Uh, And you can't see his face. And especially uh, in painting movements such as this, light was everything. And so that his face was dark um, is meaningful. But what I noticed today as I looked at this painting, uh, I noticed where most of the light was. And I'm not sure if, um, if, if this does a justice, but when you look at it, most of the light is right there. Um, and where's, what's there? It's heart. And so what uh, Mateo Carrezo was trying to get across in this painting, the thing he wanted you to see, the thing that he was trying to highlight uh, is the heart of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. And as we think about that, and as we think about Good Friday, a text that I ran across earlier in the week and has just been with me since then is Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to just spend a few minutes tonight before we take the Lord's Supper looking at verses 10 through 18. Uh, I'll actually have it up here we can you can follow along as we read and then there'll be another slide that has the whole thing kind of crunched up on one slide because I want to just point some things out to you but follow along as I read Hebrews 10 and when I talk about the heart of Jesus that's highlighted in his act of giving up his power and self-surrender just a phrase I, I want to highlight and stick out to you tonight is the phrase that he was not ashamed to call us brothers. But follow along as I read Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why... He isn't ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death who are being tempted. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And so when we think about that heart of Jesus and the love that was there, I want to talk tonight about what that heart of love wanted to accomplish and therefore what was necessary to accomplish it. What that heart of love wanted to accomplish and therefore what was necessary to accomplish it. The text, if you sit and stare at it, uh, a lot of things just rise to the surface when you ask the question, all right, if Jesus has a heart of love towards us, what in that heart of love did he want to do? The first thing that sticks out to me in this passage is that he wanted to sanctify us. He wanted to sanctify us. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So the idea of being his brother is tied up with that word to sanctify. Now that word sanctify comes from a Latin word, which basically just means to make holy. We're in a sanctuary. That is, we're in a holy place. The inner part of the temple was described in Latin as the inner sanctum. That is the most holy place. Uh, And when we think about that word to sanctify us, all right, so Jesus died to sanctify me. He died to make me holy. What we need to do when we read the Bible is we don't just need to read the Bible, we need to read ourselves as we read the Bible. And why do I say that? Because I can give you a definition of the word holy. I can tell you what it denotes. But as important for your experience is not just what it denotes, that is what it literally means. What's important for you is what it connotes. What I mean by that is the things that come into your mind and are associated with that word. Not just the mere definition, but the associations. So if we were to say holiness, I could give you a denotation of that word. I could give you a literal definition. It comes from a root word that means to cut, and so that is to take away from what is normal and to set aside and apart for special use. That's what to be holy means. That's what it denotes. But then when I say that, I say the word holy, I wonder what, read yourself, what comes to mind when I say that word holy? Because depending on what you have in yourself, the way you respond to that word, Jesus dying to sanctify us can either be okay or bad or great. So here's the question. When I say the word holy, what does it connote for you? Is it the bitter person who doesn't do the fun stuff. Right? The person with uh, angular, mean face, pursed lips, always worried about the lines and the limits, always worried about crossing them, and always worried about keeping an eye on anyone who might cross them. Is that the connotation of holiness that comes to your mind? And do you think if Jesus loved us, he died to do that to us? What connotations should come to your mind when you hear that word holy? Love, right? The Bible says that the summation of all of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? What if holiness connoted to you a person who is full of sacrificial love, full of enduring joy, and full of life because they're right with God and living virtuously? You know that feeling that comes when in a situation where a thousand times you did the wrong thing, you finally did the right thing? And just the strength that you get Have you ever seen a person who isn't a bitter person uh, who doesn't do the fun stuff, but a person who has joy on their face because they know God, they're living for him, and that's overflowing, and a deep and genuine concern for people, a sacrificial love, and an enduring joy? That Jesus loved you meant that he came to do that to you. He came to do that. The bright spot on his face Heart, The light on his heart. His heart is to make you full of sacrificial love. Enduring joy and and life. Because you're right with God. Another way to say that. Is to say to bring you to glory. That's the other thing that happened there. Uh, Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom uh, and by whom all things exist. That's God the Father. In bringing many sons to what? Now again, denotation and connotation. What in this passage does glory mean? Easy, Drew. To bring me to glory means to bring me to God. God is full of glory. That's awesome. That is awesome. That's not what's going on in this passage. If you read in uh, Hebrews 2, just above this, you'll see a quote to Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a psalm about mankind. you know what it says? It says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So that word glory right there, just above our passage, is not referring to the glory of God. It's referring to the glory of man. The glory that we were intended to have. As stewards of God's creation, as people who were truly and fully human. Now, of course, to be truly and fully human means to reflect the glory of God, right? But when it says here that Jesus was bringing many sons to glory, listen to me, when it says he was seeking in love to bring you to glory, what it means is not just that he was trying to bring you to the glory of God, it means he was trying to bring you back to the full glory that you were supposed to possessed from the very beginning. In other words, Jesus died to make you sanctified, that is to make you fully human, that is to make you glorious. And then third, and this is the one that got me all week. One of the things that Jesus's heart of love wanted to do was to come down and live our existence, listen to me, so he could Without shame, call us brother. I just circled that word as it occurred in this passage this week because I've given Jesus so many reasons to be ashamed of me. Given him so many reasons to be ashamed. And the scripture says that he took up flesh and blood so that we would not be ashamed. Now, again, this is important. I'm in nerd modes tonight. The reformers, when they defined what faith is, they defined it using three terms. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Notia, assentus, and fiducia, again, if you're a nerd. It's fiduciary bank. That's where that comes from. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And these are very important at different times in our lives. Sometimes it's really important that you get straight what the Bible says and what it is that you're supposed to know. And sometimes you've got to look at yourself and you've got to go, all right, so I know what it says. Now, assent, do I believe it's true? Sometimes you spend hours of your life wondering, do I believe it's true? All right, what does it say, do I believe it's true? But where we mostly live is in trust, that is, do I put the weight of my soul on it? That's where you live most of your life. These other two are important, and they have times where we have to investigate and look. We know, we assent, and then we trust. And the thing is, so many of us do well with the first two and stink at the third. And I am among that number. Because I know what the Bible says. I'm trying to grow in my knowledge of it. I assent to it that it's true. I can't imagine life that it wasn't true But then when the day in and day out realities of life and relationships and parenting and being a son and being a pastor and being a human being, trust is the one because I think behind all of God's great truth that I think is true is a frowning face. And then verses like this break through and they just supercharge my trust because they help me to realize That the God in which I believe and the God that through Jesus I know worked so that he would not be ashamed to call me a brother. That he's actually out for my good. That he loves me in spite of things and he loves others in spite of things. And so Jesus came to sanctify us, that is, with a heart full of love for us to fill us up with love, joy and life. Because we're right with God and because we're living virtuously. Jesus came to lead us to glory. That is to lead us to what we were supposed to be. And he came so that he could unashamedly call us brother. And the amazing thing is the first verse in the Greek in this passage is this word, fitting. So if those are the things that Jesus wants to do, then what is the fitting way to make that happen? you all with me? here's the fitting way to make that happen. To take up flesh and blood, to take up our experience, and to live it perfectly and to redeem it. If those are the things he wanted to do, then here's how he had to do it. He had to take up flesh and blood, he had to live that glorious, true human life, and he had to face everything that we face. And that's what we see going on in this passage. It's fitting, Jesus entered into life. And do you know what life is? Life is a fatal, all-in game. And by game, I don't mean game. I mean a fatal, all-in enterprise. Life is life or death, isn't it? And so, and, and I, I don't like that we shield our children from death because life is life and death. And I don't like that we shield ourselves from too much pain because then we begin to live in the delusion that life is not a fatal, all-in enterprise. It is. And that's why we have to grow up. That's why we have to face it. That's why we have to be responsible because it's an all-in, fatal enterprise. And what Jesus did was take that up so that he could sanctify us, bring us to glory, and call us brothers. And here's what he did. He took up our experience to become our champion and to become our priest. How do we know that? There are three Old Testament quotations in this. Here's the first one. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's from Psalm 22 and that's put on the lips of Jesus. What is that saying? One of the ways in which he's a brother to us is he came in human flesh, and instead of being worshipped, he came to worship. He took up our experience of worshipping God. And then second, it says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus took up our experience of being dependent and in need and trusting God. And then third, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus came and he became a fellow family member. He wasn't just born into humanity. He was born into our family. And family is often trouble, isn't it? And so he took up our experience in that way. And it also says... He took up our experience in being what? Tempted. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That means he faced the temptation of the bad. The temptations that come to us in bad ways. He faced those. So he faced turn this stone into bread when he was hungry. He faced the temptation to lie. He faced the temptation to lust. He faced the temptation to give up in despair. Father, will you let this cup pass from me? And not only did he take up those temptations, and those are the kind of temptations that I tend to face, he took up the temptations that other people's faced. He took up the temptation of the good. We're going to go through Mark in the fall, God willing, which means I'm going through Mark right now in my quiet time. And here's what's amazing. Every time in Mark, just about, that Jesus has a real successful day the next day he's in the wilderness. And what commentators think is going on there because Jesus begins the gospel in the wilderness is they think he goes back out to where he suffered so his head won't get too big. Another, he was tempted to ride away of a wave of popularity. He was tempted to overrun things and move past the Lord when things were going well. He was tempted both with the good and he was tempted with the bad. And so what Jesus did is he took up our experience so that he could become our champion and our priest. It says here, founder of our salvation. That's the word Archigos. That means the, the, the trailblazer, the one who hacks the way through the wilderness. Jesus is the one who did that. He took up our experience and he took humanity Through the wilderness and cut a path to glory. The second thing he did is he rendered Satan powerless. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. I talked to a person today who's struggling with panic attacks and, like me, has done it for many, many years. And I was just reminded that anxiety comes from the idea that something could happen where God will just drop you off. Right? I'm done. They want to go crazy. I'm going to let them. They're going to make that decision. They're not going to be perfect in that way. Then they're, I'm letting them go. Why do we feel that? Why do we struggle with that? Why do we think God's going to let us go? Here's why. Because he's perfect and we're what? Not. Not only are we not perfect, he's perfect. We're bad. And what the devil does is he gets in there and he uses our sin against us and our relationship with God. He has the power of death because he knows that you know your sin should separate you from God. And when you die, everlastingly so. And so our sin gives him power of death. And he holds that over our head so that death at any moment when it comes could eternally separate us from God. And he uses that power to make us less and less and less and less and less less human. And so what Jesus did is for the sake of the children of Abraham, he came and through dying bore all their sins so that not only could he not unashamedly call us brothers, but also so that God could call us unashamedly sons and daughters. And in that way, he rendered Satan powerless. That's what that word destroy there means. It doesn't mean he evaporates. It means he renders powerless And how did he do that? He did that by propitiating for our sins. That's what verse 17 says. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation goes well with the idea of fear of death because propitiation means to remove wrath. But what Jesus did, and we'll move into communion with this, when he died, when he had his hands tied, the thing about that painting is it's supposed to highlight not the physical torture that Jesus went through, but the emotional torture highlighting the heart. What Jesus did all those years ago is he took up our nature so that he could take us to glory, and he did that through the path taking away our sins so that God is not angry with you? This question means everything. Do you believe that God is angry with you? If you're in Christ, you really, really shouldn't. You really, really shouldn't. That means the suffering that comes in your life is not because God is angry, right? That means even though you sin, God is not angry. And it's not because he's an adult or uh, a doting old man. It's because he has legitimately been satisfied on your account by his son. He's not mad. There's this great scene in a movie that I don't recommend any of you watch called Goodwill Hunting. It's got Boston language in it. In Boston, they think the F word is. Uh, an article. Right? Uh, But there's this scene in the movie where this kid who's a genius but has been beaten his whole life sees this psychiatrist and he finally breaks down because the psychiatrist basically just says to him over and over again, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault that you were abused. And I think I could stand here and just keep saying that until all of y'all break like Will Hunting does in the movie. He's not angry. 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 Jesus made propitiation for your sins, and he willingly did it. He took up your nature to make you glorious. He took up your nature to make you holy, and he willingly did it. God's not man. And because of that, God will be with you. God will work for you. And God will make sure that for everyone that Jesus died, for the sake of Jesus, they will make it to glory. God will, has saved you for Jesus' sake. And God will save you for Jesus' sake. And God will work everything for your good for Jesus' sake. And that all happened because 2,000 years ago, A cry went from a cross. Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, so that he would never have to forsake you.